told her to go back and sit with her mother, and she said, or I could come up with you. <laughs> if you want to turn in a Bible, we're in John chapter 17. We'll be finishing it this morning. If you didn't realize some of those hymns we've sang in recent weeks, but since it's our last week, I chose some of our favorites to sing together, so I hope you all don't mind. Um, And we're going to close with a a long one of There is a Fountain. So we're going to close with that, which is a long one, and we're going to sing the verses because I want to. So um, (laughs) so we're just going to have to deal with it, all right? we might, so we might be a little long today because there's communion as well, but I hope because it's my last week you'll show a little bit of grace on that. So let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for your glory and your grace that you've displayed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us in these moments as we come to your word to turn our eyes, our hearts to Jesus. Father, we ask that your spirit would help us, that he would strengthen us, that he would remove distractions from our minds and our hearts that would hinder us from hearing your word, that he would push us more to look at Jesus, to hear Jesus, and to respond to Jesus, Lord. Help us as we hear your word, to find our hearts changed, even in the slightest, Lord, that just each and every day, each and every week, our hearts would slowly change. And we ask that you would allow your word, have your word, be part of that process this morning, changing us from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of Jesus. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. I've been thinking over the last few weeks of what, what the Lord would want me to emphasize this morning and the last message I have to give. I knew what passage we were going to be in, so I knew there was a lot that we could unpack in this passage. After all, As we close John chapter 17, we're in Jesus' final words with his disciples before he goes to the garden and gets betrayed. Once this prayer ends that Jesus is praying in these moments, they go to the garden, he gets arrested, and it doesn't include his other prayer. So in John's gospel, these are Jesus' final words that only his disciples will hear before he goes to the cross. So he wants us to see these as the final moments with his beloved followers. And what makes these words in our passage this morning particularly meant for us is Jesus does pray for all believers in these verses. Last week he turned from his he was in with his disciples praying for them, and we saw implications for us in that. But this morning he turns and prays for all who would believe from the ministry of the disciples that he's about to send them on. That includes you and me this morning. So I can't imagine any place I'd rather end. To look at what Jesus specifically prayed for us on his final night, 
his final moments as he goes to the cross. But if I had to sum it up for you in a title for the message, you can see it up there, I'd state it this way. Remember the ends. Remember the ends. Now that might sound odd to you. The ends. What's an end and how am I supposed to remember it? As we get into the passage, I think it'll be more clear. But let me just kind of begin it this way. Sometimes the most profound truths... The most life-altering realities that Jesus presents to us, that he makes known to us, are found in what seems to be the most ordinary language. When we read our Bibles, we can easily glance over words like for, with, through, or in. But as we look at this final passage this morning, I want us to see everything Jesus is about to pray for hinges upon the word in. Everything you or I could ever need in life is found in something, or rather, in someone, to be found in Jesus Christ himself. So let's look at the truth together. John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. John 17, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So we see Jesus begin this portion of his prayer with what I already shared, that he is praying for those who will believe. Right? Last week, like I said, we saw prayers for the disciples, but we did see implications for ourselves within those prayers. But now, this transition that happens in verse 20 tells us that Jesus is about to begin to pray for all believers in the history of the world. Right? The disciples are going to go after Jesus ascends, and after the power of the Spirit comes, they're going to begin to spread in the book of Acts the gospel message, the word of Jesus. And over the last 2,000 years, that word has gone from that place to us. Because of what Jesus sent them on, that is why you and I sit here this morning, because of the word that has been gone forth and those now who have believed it. And so Jesus is praying for us in these verses. But before we jump too much into what he prayed for, for those who will believe, I want to give some special attention to just a couple aspects of this first verse, right? These are kind of 
a specific emphasis I want to put since this is my last time with all of you. He says he is praying to his Father for those who will believe in him. Now, we've covered this before, but I want to cover it again, again, for, for obvious reasons. What does it mean to believe? Now, to many of us, that sounds elementary, doesn't it? However, from my experience, belief or faith in Christ in many churches, I'm not just saying this church, but from some testimonies I have heard in this church, belief or faith in Christ has been reduced to mean much less than what it really means when Jesus describes it. So I want to emphasize for a moment, what does it truly mean to believe in Jesus? Let me first, by giving three things belief is not, that will help us. First, belief is not a one-time past decision. I ask many people for their testimony about their walk with Christ, and how often all I get is, well, I walked to the altar when I was a child and prayed a prayer. And that's the extent of belief. My friends, what would happen, I don't know who has the longest marriage in here, but let's just say a marriage of 25 or 30 years, and the wife comes to her husband and says, do you love me? And the husband says, well, I was at the wedding, wasn't I? How, how many wives are going to say, okay, yeah, that's sufficient for me. You showed up on the first day, so that must mean you love me now all these years later. But how many of us often use the altar or when we pray that prayer as, okay, I must believe. Now, yes, like marriage, belief begins at a certain moment in time. That's true, right? I don't think it's wrong necessarily to start there when we begin to talk about belief. But if it doesn't have any present ongoing implications, we've missed it. We've missed what it means to walk by faith. Belief, faith must continue. It must grow. So that's the first one. Belief is not just a past, one-time past decision. Number two, belief is not mental assent. Belief is not mental assent. Just because you might say, I believe there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, died on a cross and was resurrected, and maybe even did it for people's sins. Just because you say, I think that's historically accurate, doesn't mean that you put your trust in it. Does that make sense? I wake up every morning and believe that the Egyptian pyramids or that the Crusades or that Abraham Lincoln are all historically accurate things, but they don't have my faith. I'm not putting my trust in those things when I wake up. So it's not just saying I believe it's a historical accurate fact. It's saying that I am trusting this. I actually prefer to use that term. This is where the, the term belief, those who believe, often gets misconstrued in the English language because for us to believe something means we believe it's true, right? That it's a fact, that it happened. But that's not what Jesus means necessarily. I mean, yes, that's part of it, but it's much more than that. To say that we believe in Jesus is not, okay, yeah, he was real. It's to say that I'm going to give myself to that person. I'd prefer to use the term trust to actually designate what, what I think Jesus is getting at here. 
to trust in him, to give ourselves over to him, to become dependent on him. In fact, Jesus back in John chapter 6 describes belief as those who feed and drink him. How many of us feed and drink on what we think is just historically true versus feeding and drinking on the one that we trust? So it's not just mental assent. And last, belief is not obligated behaviors. Belief is not obligated behaviors. Again, I can't tell you how many times I've asked someone about their belief in Jesus and it comes down to, well, I've just always gone to church. Or I help with VBS every year. Or I teach Sunday school when we have it. And you might say, well, sure. Those things, those behaviors aren't necessarily the substance of our faith, but they are signs of our faith, right? To which I would say, possibly. To some extent, that could be true. But it's also possible to do all of those behaviors and not do them in faith. I think there's a helpful question to ask. Why do you feel guilty if you don't do those things? If you miss church for a Sunday or you skipped your service or whatever it is, why do you feel bad? Is it because you think other people will think less of you? Is it because you've set a self-standard that you want to meet? Or is it because you genuinely believe God is worthy of all of your worship and all of your service and everything that you do, and you feel guilty that you're not giving that to him? One of them, that first area of guilt of other people's standards or your own standard for yourself is not faith. But if we feel guilty that we're not giving God the glory and the worship that we know he deserves, then I think we might be on the right track of what real faith actually is. So may we remember what true faith looks like. It's a trust in Christ, a giving ourselves over to him, not living for ourselves anymore, but living for him, finding satisfaction in him, finding peace in him, finding joy in him. It must consume everything that we do. And then let me give one final reminder from this verse in what we see in those final words. Who will believe in me through their word. Our faith, our belief, is not in some generic story about Jesus. It's in a very particular story about Jesus. It's the words that the Father spoke to the Son and then Jesus gave to the disciples, and then the disciples spread amongst their regions, but also the disciples wrote down so that you and I can have faith in the real Jesus. Our faith is a person, but we only find the specifics of that person in a specific book about that person. Which means if you want to have true belief in Jesus and want to continue to grow in that faith, you must consistently come back to the word that tells you about Jesus. So my plea to you on this final morning I have is twofold from this one verse. Don't reduce your faith to something less than what Jesus called for. Give your whole self to him, all of you. And second, realize that your trust, your giving yourself to Jesus, will only be genuine in as much as it lines up with the word of Jesus. So we must read it. 
Meditate on it. Memorize it. Listen to it. Have it preached in our services. Have it be the foundation of our homes. Let this word be the thing that drives everything that we do. Now that those emphases are covered, let's jump into the request that Jesus actually makes for us. This is where we start to get into the depths of the ins, as I called them, in the title of the message. Although we already saw one in, did you catch it? In verse 20. For those who will believe in me. That's the foundation for all these other ins that Jesus is about to talk about. So remember that. But first, as we get into it, we see Jesus' desire for oneness. Jesus' desire for oneness. For those who entrust themselves to Christ... We have a stronger, better unity than any other attempt at the world that the world might try to make at unity. See it in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You catch all those ins. I'm going to break this down into a specific order, not necessarily the order that we see them there, but I think it makes sense. So first, I want to see the oneness in the Trinity. Right? The oneness in the Trinity. So God himself has a oneness among the three persons of the Trinity. There's a oneness among them. Look in verse 21. What does it say? Just as you, Father, are in me, the Son, and I, the Son am in you, the Father. Right? So the basis for our oneness, first and foremost, is we have a creator who has oneness in and of himself. He has oneness within the relationships of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the fullest oneness any of us could ever imagine. But then Jesus takes it one step further. That we who believe in Jesus have a oneness with Jesus. We have a oneness in our union with Jesus, right? We just saw it. Our, our belief is in, our faith is in Jesus. So if we are united to him, we have a oneness with him. So then look at what is true if we have a oneness with Jesus. What does it say? Father, are in me and I in you, that they also, those who believe, may be in us. So Jesus, the Son, the Father, the Spirit, all have a oneness in and of themselves. Those of us who believe are brought into this oneness. That we may be in them. Now I've said this before, this doesn't mean we become God by any means. Right? But what it does mean is we get to partake in the relationships of the Trinity to some extent. We get to participate in the relationships among Father, Son, and Spirit. Just think about that for a moment, church. You and me. Broken, dirty, evil, hostile, dead, filthy, enemies, sinners of God, now get to be in Him. I hope you see already how incredibly life-altering these ends are. 
Yet Jesus does not stop there. His very first request in verse 21 is that there would be oneness with one another. Right? So there's a oneness in the Trinity. There's a oneness that we are brought into then through Christ. But there's then also a oneness that expands to each other. Look at what he says. That they may all be one. Or you see it also again in verse 23. Right? Jesus says, I in them and you in me. So break that down for a second, right? Jesus is the center here. Jesus in the disciples. The Father is in Jesus. So Jesus is this connecting point to which the Father and the disciples come together, right? Thus Jesus can say that these disciples may be in us, in the Father and the Son. But then what's that lead to in verse 23? That they may become perfectly one. That we become perfectly one. That we who have oneness with Jesus also have oneness with others who have oneness with Jesus. Does that make sense? We who have oneness with Jesus have oneness with the others who have oneness with Jesus. Jesus knows the tendency of the human heart, doesn't he? The tendency to divide. In fact, we all see it, don't we? I can't tell you how many times, just even in my couple years here, how many times I hear from other church leaders. First question, right? When you introduce yourself as a fellow pastor, how many are at your church? Are you live streaming it? How many people are watching the live stream? That's not oneness. That's competition. It's not hard to see why Jesus makes this request, is it? That those who truly believe in Christ would be one together, just as the Father and the Son are one together. In fact, Jesus reveals a pretty striking truth in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Right? So now we're in, Jesus has received a glory from the Father, and Jesus has now given that, in some sense, to the disciples, to us. Right? And we've seen this before, right? We've seen how Paul talks about how our hearts are open. When we, when we believe the gospel, when we, our faith begins, we see the glory of who Jesus is. We have a blindness in our hearts that now it is opened up, the blinders are removed, that we see the glory of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I have given them that glory. But what's the point? That they may be one, even as we are one. Our seeing the glory of Christ should make us have unity with others who see the glory of Christ. My friends, I'll I'll say again, what I've said numerous times throughout my time here. You have more unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ than you have with anyone in the world. I don't care how much time you spend with someone, how much you get along with them, how much you enjoy the same activities, how much you've gone through together, how close you are as family members. Followers of Jesus have more in common than any other relationship in the world. 
In fact, so much that the entire New Testament calls us what? I already just said it. Brothers and sisters. We often overlook that, don't we? We see it so many times in Scripture, but we often overlook. What does that really mean? It means your family loyalties have changed if you are in Christ. In fact, Jesus represents this better than any of us did. you remember that story? He's teaching, and his mother and brothers and sisters show up, and they say, Jesus, your family's here. And what's Jesus say? Who are my mother and brothers and sisters? It is those who do the will of the Father. Jesus himself publicly says, my biological family does not override those who are in me, those who belong to me, those who also are pursuing after the will of God, the glory of God. Think about that for a moment, friends. That as someone who claims to be in Christ, the love of the Father is greater than any love of an earthly father. So then we must also conclude that the oneness of God's family, the love of God's family, should be a greater love and a more unifying love than any other biological family's love. Consider that. What would need to change in your life if you actually lived in a way that being a son or a daughter of God, a brother or a sister of Jesus, if you began to show your primary commitment was to God's family first and foremost? What would need to change if that was true? Because it was true of Jesus. It was true of what Jesus told his disciples, right? What's he tell the one guy who comes and says, Jesus, my dad just died. We're about to do his funeral. Let me go bury him, and then I'll come follow you. And what's Jesus say to him? Let the dead bury their own. What? There's a priority, a primacy placed on God's family over any other earthly relationships. But this is not only necessary, the oneness is not only necessary for our own personal walk with the Lord, but, or even our corporate walk with the Lord, but this is a oneness that also witnesses to the world. How we relate to one another within God's family has weighty implications on our witness to the world around us. It shows up twice in these verses that we've already looked at. Look at it in verse 21. They may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. But what's the purpose? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's the expected result of the unity, the oneness amongst those who are in Christ? That the world, that at least some people in the world, are going to believe who Jesus really is. I mean, we've seen already throughout this entire portion of Jesus' teaching, right? That Jesus has told them, the world is going to hate you. The world has hated Jesus. The world is going to hate his servants. But now Jesus turns it around and he says, but as you seek to be in me, 
in the Father and one, have oneness with one another, the world will watch that and some will believe because of it. He says it again in verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. By our oneness as the body of Christ, the world will know the Father sent Jesus and will know that the Father has loved us who believe in Jesus with the same love that he has for Jesus. So this should remind us of two things. One, it should remind us that we are called to have a witness to the world. The world is watching how brothers and sisters in Christ relate to one another. Right? So we have a witness to the world, plain and simple. But second, we must remember that that witness to the world is affected by how much of this oneness we're actually living out. You want more people to come to know Jesus? Do you want more people to believe in Jesus? Do you want more people to give themselves over to him? You must realize, first, you are a witness to the world around you. And second, how you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ will affect how, how effective your witness is to that world. Think about that. Your unity as a body of Christ, will affect how powerful your witness is to those who live in unbelief. Does that oneness exist here at Switzerland Baptist Church? If your answer is no, well, then you best be asking what needs to change. If your answer is yes, then we best be asking how can we display that to the world that some might believe? How can we display to the world that God's family is like no other family? Then Jesus transitions. So he has this desire for oneness that we just saw, right? Oneness within the Trinity, oneness as we're brought into that, and then oneness with one another. But now he transitions to another desire, one though for us even still today has yet to be fulfilled. But remember, who is Jesus praying near? His disciples are listening in to this prayer. So it's not just that he's making a request to the Father, but he wants his disciples to hear what it is he's requesting that will help them as they go through their lives. And so as they're about to face an unbelieving world, he wants them to have oneness, but he also wants them to have the anticipation of presence. Jesus is about to leave them. For a short time after the cross, and then for a much longer time after he's resurrected and ascends into heaven. But he prays here, next, that one day his disciples and all believers will join him. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now in one sense, spiritually speaking, some of this is already true of us, isn't it? I mean, we've seen how in 2 Corinthians, right, Paul says that our hearts have seen the glory of Christ. 
Or we do see how Paul says in Ephesians that when we're made alive, when we're brought spiritually to life, when our hearts are brought to life, what's it say? He also has seated us in the heavenly places already. So there is a sense where this is already true, but there's also a sense in which we still have yet to see the fulfillment of all of this. And Jesus makes a point earlier in this prayer, but also in this particular verse, what's he say? He's talking about the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We saw foundation of the world last week, right? Jesus was asking for the Father to give him the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. And now he's saying, Father, I know I'm going to receive that glory. When I get in that glory, I pray that you will also bring those who believe in me to see that glory, that they will be with me where I am. What should that produce in us? Think about it for a moment. My friends, we should be able to throw aside anything in this life that hinders us from walking with Christ because we have a confident anticipation that one day we will be entirely in the presence of Christ. There's no need that day for a sun because God lights the world. There's no need for tears because sorrow will be wiped away. No need for you to have any other attempt for your heart to be satisfied, for you will be in the presence of God himself. In fact, John describes it later in his epistle for us with more detail. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You will see Jesus in all the fullness of his glory. And not only that, what does it say? You will be like him. You yourself will be glorified and spend eternity in the presence of Jesus. So that leaves us with a final question. What do we do while we wait for that day? What are we left doing? While we know that is a future hope and something we hold on to and we look forward to, while we wait for that to be our reality, what do we do? Because we live in this tension that we've already been seeing, don't we? Our hearts have already been open to see the glory of Christ, but we haven't seen the fullness of his glory yet. We've already been chosen out of this world, yet we still live in the world. We are already in the Son and Father, but we don't yet have the full realization of what that means. So let me just give from these final couple verses two, or four truths to remember as we wait in this world. Quickly, four truths to remember. Number one, we know God. If that belief that we talked about earlier is true of us, if we have completely given ourselves over to Christ, trusted in him, we now have been brought into a relationship that should radically change our lives. That's what Jesus says, verse 21. Look at the differentiation that he makes in John 17, verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, And these know that you have sent me. 
Those who believe in Jesus, those who are in Jesus, know the Father. They know God. And this isn't just us as individuals, right? We just saw that this is us as a collection, a collective group. We have a oneness because all of us, if we have true faith in Christ, all of us are in Christ. All of us know the same God through Christ. That's the first truth to remember. We know God. Number two, the world does not know God. We just saw that in that verse, didn't we? While we will continue to live in this world, we should not be surprised when we see people acting like those who don't know God. Jesus told us to expect hate. After all, look at how the world responded to him. But later that night, in this very prayer, what else does Jesus say? As we walk in this oneness, in us being in Christ, and all of us together being in Christ, what should we expect? That there are some of the world who will see that and will believe because of it. So as we walk in our oneness with God and with each other in God's family, we should share the good news of Jesus to the unbelieving world and expect others to join God's family because of it. May we remember, though, that our oneness within the body has a profound impact on how effective that witness is. So we know God. The world doesn't know God. Number three, Christ will continue to make God known to us. Growth is a non-negotiable of the Christian life. No Christian is neutral. If we're not seeking to know God more, to love God more deeply, to live out more of this oneness among with our fellow believers, if we're not doing that, then we're going backwards. If it's not growing, it's shrinking. There's no middle ground in our Christian life. And Jesus makes a glorious promise here in verse 26. I made known to them your name, but it's not just that he has done it, I will continue to make it known. As we seek to grow in our faith, Christ, by the Holy Spirit, will guide us into more truth of who God is. Jesus will continue to make the Father more and more known to us as we seek him. So we know God. The world doesn't know God. Christ will continue to make God known to us. And last, Christ is in us. Remember the ends. My friends, everything changes in this last phrase. At the very end of Jesus' prayer, what's he say? And I in them. Christ in us. The Father's in the Son. The Son is in the Father but also the Son is in us. We are in Him, and we are both in the Father and the Son. To trust Christ means Christ is now in us. Through His life, His death on the cross, and His resurrection, in Christ we are now brought into relationship with the triune God Himself. 
We also have oneness with others who are in Christ. We make known to the world that they too can be in Christ. We commit ourselves to the word of God so that we will grow deeper in Christ. And one day we will be fully in Christ's presence. We will see the glory that the Son had from before the foundations of the world, and we will forever be with the one that we are presently in. Because all of this hinges on the ends. Believe in Christ. Trust in Jesus. Have faith in our Savior. Hope in our Lord. This is my final urge, plea, request, call, whatever you want to call it as as a church. Remember this. If you have trusted in Christ, Christ is now in you. You no longer live for yourself. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Lift up your eyes on Him. Set your minds on Him. Know Him. Treasure Him. Love Him. Pursue Him. Run your race for Him. Praise Him. Worship Him. Honor Him. Let everything you do be for Him. Because for those who truly believe, Christ is in you. Let's pray. Father, help us. We often forget what it means to truly trust in Jesus and that if we have done so, that Christ is now in us. Father, my prayer for this church family is that as they go from this point forward, that they would recognize more and more each day that Christ is in them if they have trusted in Christ. May that change everything, not just of this church, but all churches, of myself, Father, of all believers. May our lives be radically changed because we ourselves, the old us, has been crucified and Christ now lives in us. May we live for him all the days we have. May we worship him every day. May we seek to become more like him through his word as we long and wait for the day when we will be fully with him. Help us, Father. By the power of your spirit, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. And as I already told you, they're going to come up and we're going to sing, There is a fountain.